So um, if you have been or haven't been with us here at RUF, we, you know, this semester we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Typically what we do in RUF is we take a book of the Bible, we just sort of walk our way through it, um, and that's what we've been doing. We've been walking our way through the book of Exodus, and tonight we find ourselves really kind of at the climax of the whole story. It's probably the most famous passage from the book of Exodus, and um, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's long, I know, I, there's no way I could kind of chop it down and thin it out, but Bear with me, I'll read it, and then we'll jump in and chat about it. But here's what it says. Exodus, all of chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground, dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last night of the, during the last watch of the night, The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clouded the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. 
And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we look at it together, okay? Father, I pray that you will meet with us in whatever condition we find ourselves tonight. Father, it's um, strange coming off of spring break to have it snow today and to be marching towards the summer with all the last-minute projects and papers and reports and books we got to read. And so I I pray that you will... um, Comfort us, guide us, lead us these last few few weeks of the semester so that we would be able to wrap up this year well. But for now, will you meet with us and guide us and teach us into your truth and into your beauty? We would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's passage is really, um, it's about salvation. There's probably no bigger Christian buzzword than the word salvation. You know, people talk about being saved. Talk about, people talk about, you know, when I got saved, you know, whatever. And so for that to be sort of the most popular, biggest sort of Christian buzzword that there is, I really do think, unfortunately, it's often misunderstood. But this passage, man, even though it was crazy long, I really do think it's, it's super clarifying to unpack what that word salvation is and what it means and why it is so incredibly important. And so here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn three things about salvation tonight. That salvation is complicated, that salvation is of the Lord, and that salvation is by faith. Okay? So those are the three things we're going to look at. Salvation is complicated, salvation is of the Lord, and salvation is by faith. So first, what do I mean when I say salvation is complicated? Well, If you haven't been with us uh, up to this point, or if you don't remember where we are because of spring break, let me just sort of refresh your memory before we kind of parachute into this thing. Remember, the Israelites have been in slavery to the nation of Egypt for 400 years. And God wants to bust them out of slavery, so he hammers Pharaoh, who has been resisting this over and over and over, with the ten plagues. And so Pharaoh releases them. He releases them from bondage. They are freed from slavery. Egypt is at their back. The promised land is to their front. They're out. But look at verse 5. Here's what verse 5 says. When the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, was told that the people fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So Pharaoh kind of has this light bulb go off when the people of Israel leave. And he thinks, oh man, We just lost our entire labor force. 
That's not a good thing. So what he does is he summons this army of 600 chariots to go after them. Now, chariots at this time, you know, historically speaking, this was cutting-edge military technology. These were like tanks. So I don't think Pharaoh is going after them to sort of recapture them and bring them back under his submission. What he's doing is he's going to decimate them, kill them all fully and finally. He's going after them. And so here's what we learn. The people of Israel are free, and yet their old slave masters still want their lives. The people of Israel are free, but their old slave masters come back and still want to take their lives. And if you noticed it, the people of Israel themselves, when they see the Egyptians coming after them, they freak out. Look at what they say in verse um, 11 and 12. It says this. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're basically saying, dude, when you came to us, Moses, and said, God was going to liberate you. God is going to liberate us. We were like, no, we love it here. Like, Egypt is awesome. Like, we don't like this. But is that, is that really what they said? No, of course not. If you go back into chapter 4 and revisit the time when Moses comes to them and says, hey, God's going to bust you all out of slavery, it says they believed God and worshipped. So what they're doing right now is they're rewriting history. In fact, they're going to do this again in a couple of chapters, which we're going to see next week. So here's, here's why salvation is complicated. Here's what I mean by that. is because they are objectively released from slavery. And yet, their old slave masters still want their lives, and they themselves want to go back. And what we see here is that it's possible to be objectively freed from slavery, and yet to live subjectively like a slave. It's possible to be objectively liberated from slavery, and yet subjectively, experientially, functionally, still basically live like a slave. And that's why salvation is basically complicated. And so, to translate this, the gospel of grace is that you have been freed from sin. For everyone that is in Christ, you have been released from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. That's objectively true of you if you are in Christ. And yet, just hearing that, you know as well as I do, just hearing that doesn't necessarily mean that you live in a way that's consistent with that. So take me for an example. Use me as an example. Uh, I was telling someone this earlier today, but um, almost two years ago now, two years this summer, I was interviewing for the job that I'm currently in at the moment. I was in North Carolina, and I was interviewing for um, to be the RUF campus minister at UT. And the way that this interview went is it was a phone call with me and a committee of six other guys, sort of a conference call deal. And leading up to this phone call, man, I was... Very nervous, very scared, very uh, anxious. And I was talking with one of my sort of spiritual mentors about this, and I was telling him, like, oh, I got this in- you know, interview coming up. I'm kind of freaked out about it. And he looked at me and was like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, this should be like a walk in the park to just, like, tell these guys, like, who you are and what the deal is. Like, why are you so freaked out? And what he was doing is, throughout our conversation, he was basically putting his finger on, look, there, there's an old slave master of yours, that is coming back and wanting to claim your life in this moment. 
It is that old slave master, Matt, of needing other people's approval. Because that slave master came back and in that moment was saying to me, Matt, do not blow this. You have to be on. You have to manipulate this situation. You've got to show your best sides and hide your, your, you know, your worst sides. And in that moment, I was so terrified. I was anxious. The thought of even going into the conversation was exhausting. It was slavery. But in Christ, I had been objectively freed from needing other people's approval because the only person's approval that really matters, I already have. But yet in that moment, there was an old slave master that came back and said, no, serve me or die. And I just so easily reverted back. And maybe you can relate with that. Or maybe for you, um, you know, if you're in Christ, you have been objectively freed from um, the need to control your world. You know, but before you were a Christian, you had to control everything. You controlled your room, you controlled your lives, you controlled your schedule, you controlled your inbox, and you were sort of a stressed out, anxious control freak. But you've been released from that. The gospel has freed you from having to manage the universe, the slavery, the exhaustion of having to manage that. But you know as well as I do how easy we just go back and start serving the old slave masters. I've got to control everything. I've got to manage everything. I've got to manage everyone's opinion of me. Even though you're freed from it, objectively speaking, you can still revert right back. Here's another example. You know, in Christ, you, you have been released, liberated, from the power of guilt. You know, Jesus has taken your penalty of guilt on the cross. Paul says there is now, right now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And yet, you know as well as I do, it is so easy to just revert back and and let yourself be buried under the power of guilt. To let those voices come into your head and say, do you call yourself a Christian? After what you've done? After what you've been doing? Just let those voices of accusation and condemnation speak so loudly and go right back to serving those old slave masters that you've been freed from. Don't you see, this is why salvation is complicated. You can be, it is very possible to be objectively freed from old slave masters and yet they still want to come back and take you and you still want to go back and serve them. So so what do we do about this? Because every Christian, at least, in this room, myself included, deals with this, where we believe one thing with our head and another thing with our heart. You know, we we believe, but we don't really believe what we believe. So what do we do? Well, let's look at the second thing, because the second thing shows us that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not just complicated, but salvation is of the Lord. So if you you look back at verse 2, God tells the people of Israel to set up a camp by these weird places that, is, that are hard to pronounce, but it's basically right by the sea. Now, humanly speaking, militarily speaking, that's pretty stupid because to set up a camp right by the sea means that you're hemmed in. You, you, there, there's no option to retreat. You know, if the, you know, if the Egyptians come, there, there's no um, escape route. So, when the Egyptians do come, they're trapped. They're hemmed in. And God has basically orchestrated this impossible scenario that the only possible outcome is failure. And so the question is, okay, why would God do that? Why would God lead his people into this impossible situation where there's no escape route, there's there's no option for them? Well, look at verse 4. 
Verse 4 tells you. Verse 4 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Look, the reason why God puts the people of Israel in this situation is to drill home this point. There are no human solutions to your problem. You can't save yourself. By my grace, I'm drawing you into this desperate place where the only option is for me to rescue you 100%, and therefore for me to get 100% of the glory. The point that he's making is that salvation is 100% of the Lord. You can't, you can't do anything. It's, it's his work, not yours. From start to finish, 100%, it's his so that he can get all the glory. This is why Moses says in verse 13, here's what he says. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. He's going to do the thing that you can't do. So what do you need to do? Be still. Do nothing. Watch and receive what he will do. So as the story goes on, the Lord miraculously saves them. He opens up the waters, as you know. There's dry ground. The people of Israel pass through. They get on the other side. They literally go from death to life. And as the Egyptians try to follow them, the waters collapse, and all the Egyptian army is annihilated. And salvation has been accomplished in a moment. And really, I want to highlight this. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world, every other philosophy, every other spiritual system in the world, because every other religion, every other spiritual system views salvation as a process. Christianity views it as a point in time. Here are, the, here are the Israelites, and they have, in one step, gone from death to life. They've been saved. But every other religion is a process. It's a series of events, a series of stuff that you have to do. And if the stuff has the right quality or the right quantity, then maybe, maybe, you'll get saved. So, you know, think of it like, um, think of it like a job interview. Let's say you go into this job interview, and you're meeting with, the CEO of this company directly to get the job. And the job promises for you everything that you could ever want. Fame, fortune, happiness, whatever. But the standards for this job are incredibly high. So because you've graduated from UT, you've got a stellar degree now, you, you, know, you come into this dude's office and you slide your resume across the desk. It's got your GPA on it. It's got your volunteer experience, your, you know, your work experience. And he looks over it and he says... It's not good enough yet. I like you. I want you to go back out. I want you to keep trying. But, you're, you know, come back in and see me, and maybe you'll be qualified then. So you leave. You go back to school. You get another degree. You get, a, you know, a little bit more experience in a different sort of field. You volunteer some more. But the whole time you're doing it, you're insecure because you're wondering, okay, am I doing enough now? Is this going to be good enough now to get me in? You, you, you're riddled with questions. And so you come back to him a couple years later, slide your resume across the desk and say, here you go. And he looks over and he says, you know, this is great, but um, it's not quite good enough yet. Uh, I like you. 
So I want you to go back out, and I want you to you know, keep working at it, bulk it up a little bit more, and then come back and see me, and we'll see if you're qualified. You go back out and you do it again. That picture is basically the underpinnings of every single other religion in the world. Go out. Be good enough. Work hard. Pray. Go to church. Care for the poor. Tell the truth. And maybe if that is good enough, and the good outweighs the bad, then maybe at the end of your life you'll be qualified. But for your whole life you'll never know, and your whole life you'll be insecure. But Christianity, Christianity is radically different. Christianity is not a process. It is a point in time. It's like going in to see the CEO directly. And you slide the resume across the desk, and he looks at it and he says, well done. You are perfectly qualified. Because the thing that you're sliding across the desk is his resume. And the only reason you have it is because he gave it to you as a gift. And you know, okay, I got this based off of nothing that I've done, so there's no chance that I'm ever going to lose it because it's not based on anything that I've done or haven't done. Christianity is from beginning to end of the Lord. He does it all. He accomplishes it all. You do nothing. That's why at the center of Christianity there is a cross because what the cross tells you is that God himself had to come down to save you. You couldn't do it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't contribute to it. He had to do it. So what do you do then? You be still, you watch, and you receive. And so here's the question. Is this your story? Is that your story? Or are you trying to save yourself by your own efforts? There's lots of ways to try to save yourself. Are you trying to save yourself by having an awesome GPA, by having a stellar resume? Are you trying to save yourself by finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Are you trying to save yourself by being involved in four different campus ministries? Are you trying to save yourself by going into vocational ministry? I mean, are you trying to save yourself by finally conquering your lust, by finally being cool enough, by finally being important enough? Look, I want to tell you, all of that is slavery, and it is doomed to failure. Salvation, if, if the Exodus story is your story, this means that salvation is of the Lord. You do nothing to earn it. You simply show up, watch, and receive it. So, okay, then, last question. How do you get this? Like, how, do, how can this become your story? Because certainly not everyone is saved. This is not everyone's story. So how can this story become your story? Well, the last thing that we need to see is that salvation is by faith. It's not just that it's complicated. It's not just that it's of the Lord, but it's, that it's by faith. And Actually, if you read back through this, I don't think the word faith is anywhere in here. So where do I get that idea from? Well, if you go into the New Testament and you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, it looks back on this story, and here's what it reads. It says this, By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So when the Bible looks at this event, it sees it as the paradigm of faith. 
when the, when the Israelites are walking through the sea, as it were, that's an animated picture of what faith looks like. And so really, for the rest of our time, I, I want to draw out three aspects of what faith is, and then we'll be done. Here's the first aspect of faith. Faith takes a step. That's what faith is. Faith is taking a step. And, and you know, think about it like this. Here, here's the shore, right? The water just opens up. There's dry ground. Egyptians are behind them. My guess is there were some Israelites that were like, awesome. This is freaking amazing. And they're charging ahead. The Lord has saved us. This is awesome. And they run forward with full confidence, full faith. And my guess is if I were there and I see these walls of water sort of hanging there, I would have been a little hesitant to come walking into this because how do I know? What if I get halfway into this thing and the waters come crashing down? So you've got some people with really strong faith, some people with really weak and wavering and doubting faith, and they both cross and they both get to the other side. And what does that tell you? That tells you that salvation has nothing to do with the amount of your faith, with the quality of your faith. It has everything to do with the object of your faith, what your faith is actually in. So if you have weak faith, but it's in a strong Savior, you will be saved. This is why Jesus said your faith, if it's even just the size of a mustard seed, that's enough. Because it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's not the quality of your faith that matters. It's what your faith is in that matters. And so really, I know some of y'all have had a lot of time to process the truth claims of the Bible, to process the truth claims of Christianity. You've been coming to RUF, you've been coming to church or whatever, and you've had, you have a lot of questions still, a lot of things that are not answered, a lot of doubts still. But really, at this point, what I want to do is I want to invite you to take a step. Because even if an Israelite has strong faith or weak faith, you see they both take a step. They, mo- they both lean into the direction of God. So really tonight, for the first time, I, re- I want to personally invite you to take a step towards God, knowing that even if your faith is weak, wavering, you have questions, you have doubts, you have issues, you, have, you can have full confidence and assurance that he will save you. Because it is the object of your faith that matters, not the quality of it that matters. So faith takes a step. Here's the second aspect about faith. Faith views sin as dead. Faith views, faith sees your sin as dead. And here's where I get this from. There's there's this little detail in verse 30 that I find really interesting. After the people of Israel cross the sea, they've gone from death to life. They look back and it says that they saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Once they're saved, once they're liberated... They look back. God gives them this glimpse of their old slave masters as corpses. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, to count yourselves dead to sin. But I think the inverse is also true, that that faith counts sin as dead to you. That a life of faith means that you look through the lens of faith at your sin, at your old slave masters, and you see them for what they really are, which is corpses. You know, I don't know if people say this anymore. I'm sure I've seen this on a movie or TV or something. You know, person A hurts person B, and then person B looks at that person and says, you're dead to me. I don't know if people say that anymore. Let's, let's pretend they do. But what does it mean when someone says that you're dead to me? It means we have no relationship anymore. You don't matter to me. 
Uh, you have no influence over me. You have no control over me. I don't need you anymore. And faith looks at your sin in the same way. You're dead to me. I don't need you anymore. You have no influence over me. You have no control over me. So, you're with your friends. They're gossiping about someone else, trashing someone else, throwing them under the bus. And every instinct you have wants to join that conversation. But faith would look at that instinct and say, okay, I used to need to gossip like this, and I don't need to anymore. It's dead to me. It's a corpse to me. I I don't need this now in the same way that I used to need it then. Or let's say you're um, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you're you're tempted, you're about to um, sin in a sexual way. In that moment, you can look at that instinct, you look at that temptation and say, look, I don't need this now in the same way that I used to need it then. That instinct to sin sexually, you're dead to me. I don't need you. I have Jesus, and Jesus is enough. Whatever it is for you, faith looks at your sin, and, and it sees it as a corpse. You're dead to me. You have no influence over me. You have no control over me. I don't need you. Here's the last thing about faith, the last aspect. The last aspect about faith is that faith celebrates. You know, I, I, um, I only included the first verse of chapter 15 because I wanted just to give you a little appetizer of what's there. But the bulk of chapter 15 is a song. It's Moses and the people of Israel kind of doing this long, drawn-out, joyful celebration of what the Lord has done and what the Lord has accomplished in their life. Faith celebrates. It's, it relishes and rests and marvels and savors the fact that they have been saved by the Lord, saved by grace. And so here's the question. Do you ever do that? Do you ever create space in your life to just be with the Lord and marvel at the fact that he has saved you by grace, that you did nothing to deserve it, you did nothing to earn it, and yet he saved you anyway? Like, you know, does your faith send you in a trajectory at least of having seasons of celebration. I don't want to give you the impression it's just that way all the time, but I think you should have seasons of joyful celebration. Is that what your faith does, or does your faith just lead you to apathy, to boredom, to exhaustion? If that's the trajectory you're on, I'm going to dare to say that maybe your faith's in the wrong thing. Or maybe you've misunderstood what salvation is, that it's not about what you have done or will do or have done, but it's about what he has done. Therefore, you're free to just marvel and savor the reality and say things like, amazing grace. Grace is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Does your heart ever move in that direction? So regardless of where you find yourself tonight, if you are a Christian or if you are not a Christian, it does not matter. I'm going to invite both of you to believe. Invite both of you to take a step towards the Lord, to trust him, to see what he has done, to watch and to marvel the fact that he saves by grace. And we'll end with this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still.
Let me pray. Father, would it be true of my heart and these folks' hearts as well that we would be still, we would stop the working, get off of the hamster wheel of trying to earn our own salvation. We would rest and relish and delight in the fact that you have saved us completely by grace. And I do pray that that would motivate us and transform us into, be, into people that celebrate, people that, that marvel at your grace and can sing amazing grace in a way that actually mean it and not just rotely going through the motions. Would you electroshock my heart and the hearts of my friends here tonight as well to really be captivated afresh with the fact that salvation is of the Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.